You're listening to the Inverse Podcast, where we explore how the scriptures can turn our world upside down. Or how it can be weaponized to uphold the status quo. I'm Drew Hart. And I'm Jared McKenna, and this is Inverse. All right, folks, we are excited about our guest for today. We've got Mako Nagasawa. Uh, He is the founder and executive director of the Anastasis Center. Um, He, since 2000, um, he, Ming, and their two children, John and Zoe, have lived among friends in a Christian intentional community house in a black and brown neighborhood in Dorchester. Uh, Mako has done campus ministry since 2001. Um, again, he founded the Anastasis Center in 2014. Um, they worship at Neighborhood Church of Dorchester. He earned a master's in theological studies from Holy Cross Greek Orthodox Seminary in May 2019. In addition to Christian ethics, theology, biblical studies, and early church history, Mako enjoys food, tea, and stories from around the world. And he also notably misses the Pacific Ocean. Um, and he's, he also has contributed to uh, several books. Um, one is a book called Abortion Policy and Christian Social Ethics in the United States, um, which came out in 2021. And another one is Honor, Shame, and the Gospel, Reframing Our Message for 21st Century Ministry. And I believe his chapter was called How to Empower Personal Healing and Social Justice with Medical Substitutionary Atonements. That sounds interesting. And so, uh, Mako, welcome to Inverse Podcast. We're so uh, grateful that you made some time to join us in conversation. Oh, thank you so much, Drew and Jared. It's great to be here and to finally meet you. Likewise, mate. And for for those of us who um, aren't in your neck of the woods, uh, Dorchester, whereabouts in particular is that? That's in Boston. Uh, Boston is made up of several kind of large neighborhoods like chunky neighborhoods and so uh dorchester is right next to um roxbury and where um roxbury is a little more famous i think because malcolm x grew up there and Mm -hmm. dr king worshiped there for a while um uh, dorchester is um is is a large stretch of uh, uh kind of south of roxbury south and west Thanks, Marco. Um, let's start with that uh, initial question we've been asking in that se- uh, in this series. When and how do you first remember the gospel being articulated? And was atonement articulated as the gospel when you first remember it being spoken of? <laughs> that's a that's a great question. I um, <clears throat> I, I I would did not grow up in a Christian family. Uh, I I started really a, a journey of exploration uh, involving atheism, Buddhism, and Christianity when I was in a, a sophomore in, in high school. I committed my life to Jesus in, as a junior in high school. And I don't remember atonement being central. Uh, I remember asking a lot of questions of, of, about it. Um, like, why did Jesus die and why did he suffer? It was a Japanese American Methodist, a free Methodist church. And so maybe, you know, like, Maybe the, the emphasis on God's love and and what what I would recognize later as John Wesley's own attempt to 
get back to earlier Christian sources mm. prior to the Reformation, like really had an influence. Um, but it wasn't until college that I I heard atonement and thought about it as, in a more systematic way. And that was at, as a five-point Calvinist. And so <laughs> I heard of it as, uh, you know, in the, in the more refined senses and in the more crude senses. So the refined yeah. senses were like, well, Jesus, you know, God has uh, both both wrath and retributive justice and mercy and love, right? And so uh, something has to be done because there's a conflict of attributes in God. And so God uh, satisfies his retributive justice and uh, by, by pouring it out on Jesus at the cross. And I read uh, John Stott, uh, you know, R.C. Sproul, and, and Calvin himself uh, on many of these things. The crude examples would be, you know, the the uh, the drawbridge example, right? The father, like, who's the drawbridge operator, sees his son playing and baby, you know, young son playing in the gears of the drawbridge and has to save lives by raising the drawbridge because the ship's going to pass. And so he sacrifices his son. So you know, the, the, those were the crude imagery, like, or the judge uh, be in the courtroom, the, the sentence is death, uh, we're awaiting death and the sentence to be carried out and executed, but Jesus interposes, he enters the courtroom, and then he takes the punishment. So, mm -hmm. uh, you know, I, it, it made me ask a lot of questions i guess and <laughs> yeah like, like uh where's the department for children protection with this father letting his son come to to work like, well, that's, like <laughs> i don't i don't think i was as knowledgeable then as i am now but i, right. I probably would have asked that uh well you know my parents were not christians and that mattered mm. a lot to me I, uh to my you know i i wasn't the first christian in my extended family but it was, I was one of the few, very few. And so limited atonement or unlimited atonement, that was the first thing. So I, I heard about, oh, well, maybe you could be a four point Calvinist, right? Like be the TU <laughs> and then the IP and it just like fudge the limited atonement part. But then, you know, I'd read J.I. Packer and it's like, well, you're seeing, you're pretty certain and it, it's persuasive. Like if it's a legal punishment, then yeah, I mean, you have to avoid the double accounting problem, right? Like, mm. if God pours out his wrath once, then he can't pour it out again. That doesn't make any sense. And so uh, I, I guess it has to be, you know, limited if this is the paradigm, because uh, if he poured out all his wrath, then there'd be no hell. There'd be no reason to uh, repent. There, there there'd be no reason to do evangelism. So, you know, it, it could undercut everything. So I could understand the logic of like, oh, this is why limited atonement is the corollary to penal substitution, really penal satisfaction. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and, and that raised a lot of questions like, well, does that mean I might care about my family and non-Christian friends more than God? Mm -hmm. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, can I say Jesus died for your sins? Like Jesus loves you? Mm. No, I mean, because that uncertainty just gets right in there. It's wedged right in. I, mm. you know, who is it? Mark Dever, who says, yeah, Jesus died for sinners, 
and you might be one of them. <laughs> wow. wow. That's amazing. Wow. Yeah. That's all right. So I, I'm, I'm interested now. So, you know, I mean, one of the things that certainly in our community um, that a lot of folks, as we've kind of been having these conversations around atonement theology, for a lot of folks, they're beginning to see that how they understand atonement also has a lot to do with how they um, understand who God is, right? It's mm. related to the character of God, right? And so I'm curious, as you're thinking about these depictions uh, or these articulations of atonement theology that you were exposed to, how would you say, like, maybe you kind of hinted at it already a little bit, but a little bit more like, how are they depicting God? And then the other side of the question is, is that it also has something to say about our own ethics, right? If the ethics of God, like, so I'm curious, what is what is this kind of depiction also invited us into in terms of how we live our lives and, and our ethical commitments? Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, I have framed it as a, a contrast between retributive justice and restorative justice. Mm. And uh, I, I, I want to acknowledge retribution is a word that is used in scripture, but it's often it's it's used more in a general sense of there's a consequence or there's a response. Retributive justice has a formal definition, at least yeah. in the criminal justice world, where there's like uh, proportional suffering that's done to an offender, right? Like if right. I do something to hurt you, then then something should be done to me uh, to hurt me or to take right. away my liberty or to make me pay a fine or something like that. So that is retributive justice. Um, restorative justice is not offender centric. Restorative mm -hmm. justice is victim centric. So if I do something to hurt you, then I need to do something to help you heal from the damage that I caused. Mm -hmm. Now, and, and, and so it is more victim centric because the first question is, what do you need to, uh, to move on or to, to heal, uh, maybe physically or emotionally, and, and then can trust be rebuilt between us? Mm. And uh, those, I mean, generally speaking, that's the definition and th th there's a precision to those definitions. And the, the issue is, which is divine justice? Like what, what for God's justice, which is it? And, and therefore, if we are called to, if we are in the Imago Dei and we're called to imitate God and imitate Christ, then what type of justice do we uh, manifest in this world in relationship yeah. to one another? And, and even how do we build institutions? That's right. Uh, not only criminal justice, of course, but, economic uh, relationships, uh, our ecological relationships? What, is it, what does it mean to live in restored relationship with the land? If, if, you know, retributive, if retributive justice is really God's justice, then that question has no meaning, really. Mm. Uh, because how do you, you don't have retribution on the land. Uh, there's an, that's an inanimate thing. So, uh, I, I think that's the, the starting point. And um, I, I, can, I can start talking about scripture and then like the practice of this, but in a, in a really quick overview, um, 
I think God's justice is restorative all the way through scripture. And, and that, I, that is probably the, the most mind-blowing thing, uh, especially when, if you read the Old Testament. And yes, there's, there's reasons why Christians throughout the ages have expressed different levels of discomfort with the Old Testament. I mean, so, so that's fine. Um, but I, I think about it like this. When God exiled Adam and Eve from the garden, I mean, Irenaeus and Methodius and Athanasius, Gregory of Nazianzus, they would say it's because he didn't want us to eat from the tree of life while we were in a corrupted state, right? So it wasn't retribution. It was a step towards restorative justice. God knew that he was going to come as Jesus from that point and, and undo the corruption of sin in human nature to restore human nature to us and offer it by Jesus in the spirit. And so, so he did not want people to immediately have the chance to immortalize human evil, the sinfulness in ourselves. Mm. So yes, it's a severe mercy, but it's still a mercy. And it's not, mm. it's not retributive. It's not God saying, you hurt me, so I'm going to hurt you. Uh, and, and then he partners with the people of Israel because he needs a, um, a medical focus team right? Like he's a good doctor working with the resistant patient population. Everyone blames someone else, like Adam blaming, Eve, or, you know, like that's the, that's the resistant patient population. So what does he have to do? He has to call together a focus group. That's Israel. And he says, I, I, I will give you an experience. I will restore for you a, an experience of the garden land. You will be like a partially restored Adam and Eve, Right. Mm -hmm. So Abraham and Sarah, they go to the garden land, they're partially restored, but then, uh, and, and then Israel as a whole. And, and so there's a, there's a res restorative justice picture there. And because, and, and then God has to protect Israel. Stop me if you want to interject, or if you, if you want me to go to some, you're in run Marco, you go, you go, <laughs> but God has to protect Israel because if Jesus is going to have a real humanity, then he has to have a real childhood and a real infancy and a real experience in a real mother's womb. And, and then he has to have a real learning experience when he is growing up and learn his vocation in a human way. And so there has to be a real community there on a real land with real documentation. And so ab about what that vocation is. And, and so Yes, God needs an Israel, and uh, Israel, he gives them commands, uh, basically, and, and says, circumcise your hearts. Like, if you internalize these commands, you will cut away uh, the, the corruption of sin from, from within you. And, and that harkens back to the fiery sword, right, uh, standing outside the garden with the cherubim, where God takes the appearance of, of that fiery sword, it, it seems, saying, one day you will come back here. I will bring you back to the Garden of Eden, but I will need to burn away or cut away something from you mm. with your partnership. And so circumcision of, and circumcision of the heart, uh, or, or basically the sword and the fire are motifs that run through scripture and, and pop up because everywhere God is, is using that, like he is saying, I want to cut away or burn away something in you and mm. circumcision of the heart is one of the dominant motifs israel can't internalize it 
deeply enough. And so in Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, he says, God says, I will give you a circumcised heart, right? And I will restore you from exile, not simply from Babylon, but from the original exile. I will bring you back to the garden. And that's, you, you will have a new humanity in which mm. to do that. And, uh, and so basically that's kind of Israel's role as a medical focus group. God has <laughs> Marco, to protect. Yeah. As Drew said in the introduction, um, uh, are we getting your sketch of what you were to refer to as um, uh, the medical uh, atonement? Is that the language you use? It is the language that I use. Yes. Yeah. And and, and what I hear you doing is um, almost uh, tracking with your own personal journey from um, uh, free Methodism uh, to uh four and a half point Calvinism. <laughs> and then as those points started to drop, um, you, you're inviting us into a different imaginary that takes, it's the same data, uh, but processed in a completely different way. Right. Absolutely. Um, I'm, I'm fascinated. Um, uh, your initial community that um, you came to Christ in, um, were they, uh, you mentioned it was a, a Japanese uh, free Methodist um, community uh, in the U.S. What, was it very, uh, was it more American than it was Japanese? Um, and what role did, as we're talking about imaginaries and cultural formation, yes. I'm very aware that um, uh, for uh, many of my friends who have grown up um, uh, in uh, Southeast Asia or uh, across Asia more generally, that um, uh, people are socialized in such a way that um, they relate uh, to uh, any number of things um, differently. But uh, America's highly individualized society yes. often stands in contrast, or Australia's for that matter, um, stands in contrast to um, uh, Asian societies, I know we're talking about so many vast people groups when I say that, um, but often there's a shared collective um, understanding of what it is uh, to be in community. Uh, do you feel that has played an influence in how you're putting this together? Yes. I think one of the things you're referring to is the guilt versus shame paradigms. Sure. So uh, guilt is the feeling that I have done something wrong. Shame is the feeling that I am something wrong. Mm. And uh, there's, there's different reasons why people's um, emotional and mental development might track with one or the other. But uh, the, um, yes, I, I think the, um, the, the, the way that I would describe it is, um, again, when I was in college, I had I, uh, a really interesting experience of a, a white American friend and I went to hear the same preacher and this preacher said over and over again, God is with you. God is with you. God is with you. And my friend walked away feeling great. Uh, and I walked away feeling worse <laughs> uh, because, because for him, I mean, I, I mean it, it, this is a little oversimplified, I admit, but it, I think it illustrates the point. My friend's dad walked away from him and his family uh, when he was like 10. And so, you know, and his mom was a strong woman and, and raised, raised him and his siblings well. 
uh, but he had this like experience of abandonment. And so, and that is, there's a kind of shame that could kick in there, right? Like, oh, was it my fault um, it, that dad left, right? And, you know, the whole goodwill hunting, it's not your fault. And yeah, that, that's important. Um, but when he heard God is with you, of course, that meets him, right? Because the source of his kind of shame was abandonment. Yeah. I felt worse because the source of my shame was not that my parents ever left me. I had no, uh, my parents have had always been with me. And that was part of the challenge, right? <laughs> like There was a lot of negative messaging, highly controlled, like, don't you, you know, don't you know how much we've sacrificed for you? Like you, you know, you better do this or it will look bad on us or you are bad. And so in, in shame-based cultures, there's the, the feeling of um, the, the group might be good. Like my parents might be good. The older generations might be good, but I'm bad and I've messed up or I'm on the verge or I, I risk messing up. And I know that. And so, you know, the, the feeling of uh, being watched is, per, is pervasive. I'm always being watched. There, I've never had any doubt that God is with me. That's the problem. I don't know what God feels about me. Right. Wow. Because in my, for my parents, uh, it was, I'm a burden, right? Like we came to this country for you to give you a better life. We endured all this stuff for you. And, you know, as a kid, that is powerful. That's really powerful, weighty, heart level stuff. And, <clears throat> and of course, later in my life, I could think about that less like, well, I think you had some benefits to doing that too, right? Like you came <laughs> of your own. I, you know, I wasn't even in the picture. So so, oh, okay, I could think about that. But there's still the, the child, right, in me, the little mm. boy that responds to that, like, ah, well, yeah, sure. Does God look at me and just think, you're a burden. Mm. But you better be grateful. I figured out a way to tolerate your mess. Wow. Is, is that what God feels? And, Marco, I, I can hear in, in your... Um sensitivity even in um starting to to sketch um uh, the the model that you started to to lay out a a sensitivity to um uh, uh both again to use the metaphor of um the the source material of the data and how it's processed for people and yet i, I heard the influences of um uh, you know, the Cappadocians, uh, Irenaeus, um, the, there's a number of things that have already worked into your rearticulation. Um, uh, but it's a, it's a pastoral rearticulation for where it's landing for people now as well. Um, yes. I, I'm interested, um, uh, you, you've, you've started to sketch and we can hear that um, Jesus is uh, still central um, to your understanding of um uh, salvation, liberation, deliverance. Um, what what would you add to this thoroughly restorative model um, uh, that you started to sketch that um, you, you haven't got to by implication yet? What, what are the? Um, how would you now articulate Jesus saves? I guess is what I'm asking. The, well, there there is the um, phrase from Irenaeus, Athanasius, and Gregory of Nazianzus. 
uh, that which is not assumed is not healed, meaning if God doesn't assume it or take it to himself, it's not healed. Uh, another way of saying that, I think, is Jesus shared in our broken humanity that we might share, share in his healed humanity wow. or fulfilled humanity, right? And uh, Jesus became one of us that we might become one with God, that, that type of language. Uh, but it's really, for me, centered on what has Jesus done with his human nature, the, the human nature that he took on in his incarnation. As Hebrews 5, 7 through 9 talks about it, he, it, sa it says um, Jesus became perfect by he learned obedience. It's like, well, wait a minute. Wasn't he always perfect? Not in the sense that it's being described bodily and, and uh, his, his humanity was mortal. So also uh, there was a fallenness that he inherited that he never gave into, but he pressed back on um, like, like Harry Potter had to resist that piece of Voldemort's soul in him. Right. Or mm -hmm. when Frodo took on the ring, he had to fight the temptation that the ring was pushing against him as much as as he was trying to push against the ring. Right. There's this inner struggle in Jesus as he goes into the temptation experience in the wilderness and also especially at Gethsemane. But probably throughout his whole life, because those two things kind of bracket in a literary way, his his public ministry. And so Jesus is is doing that and in his death he kills the thing that was killing us and in his resurrection he raises his humanity with he he comes back with a god-soaked god-drenched humanity mm -hmm. which he can there share with us by his spirit so i would articulate things that way uh i i think you know i've had a number of jewish friends also and so this this also means something retrospectively for what we think of biblical Israel, because in a penal substitution model, we would say that Jesus kind of took the role, well, uh, Jesus took the full wrath of God, and Israel took some of the wrath of God, right, and, and or something like that, that mm. basically God needed to demonstrate before Jesus came that he could punish people disproportionately, that's often, I think, what, uh, if in effect, what penal substitution brings about. It's it's a certain reading of biblical Israel, and, and you know, to your point, Drew, I think this is why we m many white evangelicals can think of punishing brown families by separating kids from their parents and inflicting disproportionate punishment on them. It's crazy. But in the medical paradigm, Israel was a medical focus group that God needed to diagnose the disease with him. Not that he was in doubt about it, but that humanity needed to be persuaded that there really is a problem. We need a new heart. We need God's law to be written on our hearts. We need the heart of flesh, not the heart of stone. You know, Psalm 51 created me a clean heart, circumcised my heart that's what the cries of israel and the prophets were and so they couldn't do it because as paul says in romans 7 uh there was the i myself and then there's the sin which indwells me 
but there's this real I myself. It's just that I'm, I've been taken hostage. Like there's this alien thing in me and uh, it wasn't part of God's original design. I no Israelite could conquer it until Jesus. Jesus could. Jesus is the true Israelite, right? And so he fulfills both sides of the covenant, the human side and the Godward side. And that means that Christians really ought to honor biblical Judaism, right? Biblical Israel, because you, they really did accomplish something. A, a, a partial restoration of health. They documented the disease. They hoped for the cure. They were ready to, or at least some, were ready to partner with Jesus when he came. That's huge. Those accomplishments are amazing. And it's a foreshadowing of Jesus's full human partnership in the spirit with the Father. He fulfilled the vocation of Israel, as N.T. Wright would say. Mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, this is a very patristic thought that uh, the, the whole reason... Moses and Israel were, were around was so God might bestow a partial cure. But Jesus is the full cure. That's good. That's good. So one of the things we really like to do uh, for our listeners is, which in some ways you've been very transparent. So just in some ways is just kind of laying it out even more so is just for folks to get a sense of like, you know, what's under the hood, you know, what, what, what are, what your influence is. And so we like to ask, like, you know, where do you go as you're articulating like this kind of restorative atonement, um, you know, um, framework, like what, what are some of your theological sources that, that are influencing you? You've already hinted and been explicit about many of them. If you want to name some of those and maybe some others that right. are shaping kind of how you got to where you are. Yeah, sure. I'll name two of them, the Jewish sacrificial system and the, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because uh, unless someone, unless I deal with those and give a better interpretation of that, honoring the biblical data surrounding those themes and those motifs, uh, then I really have not defanged penal substitution. So mm. the, so right, because it's easy. And, and Marco, the, the, um, the importance of um, defanging, I guess, is because so many people have been bit by it, right? Like, right. Um, uh, and in terms of the the real needs that uh, both you and your friend experienced, to take it back to that story you invited us into, yeah. um, those real personal pastoral needs of where um, uh, um, uh, psychology and theology, um, you're making plain for us that those things are always interlaced and uh, um, talking to and from uh, one another. Um, would you answer it with that in mind? Can you repeat your question, Jared? There are different aspects. So with, with more of my, my personal story in mind? Uh, um, just uh, giving you the opportunity to um, uh, sp spell out the implications. So um, uh, feel free to yes. do that uh, to uh, ne not necessarily your own personal story, but um, uh, how it relates to the, the context that we find ourselves in, which Drew and I, we're always constantly 
aware um, of this historical moment that we're living through an unprecedented ecological crisis right. and all discussions of um, uh, white supremacy and its implications uh, are happening uh, in that context. And uh, as you spelt out so beautifully before, um, if we have a punitive or a restorative, uh, a retributive or restorative vision of justice um, that influences um, how we participate in communities, societies, and the kind of um, uh, structures and institutions we advocate for. Yes. And the kind of parents we become, the kind, I mean, mm. it's yeah. all, all wrapped up. Well, I would say this, I mean, the, the magisterial Protestant reformers were regime builders. Yeah. Right. I mean, mm. Calvin in yeah. in um, Switzerland, in yeah. in Geneva, uh, Zwingli in Zurich, uh, Martin yeah. Luther in 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 Germany, uh, at least as he supported the German nobles, like against mm. the German peasants who were re mm. rebelling and, yeah. and protesting because they were they were oppressed. Uh, Gustavus Vaz in Sweden, Henry VIII, you know, John Knox. Uh, I mean, they were regime builders. The Anabaptists were not. Uh, but that when you're a regime builder, I think you, you have to answer the question, what gives you the right to punish people, right? And, and uh, the, the easy answer is because God punishes people. And, and so I'm just kind of the left hand of God or whatever, you know, language we want to throw at, at that. But essentially, <laughs> God's justice is retributive. And so I get to be retributive too. Now, the early Christians were not regime builders. The empire existed, right? And then Jesus comes along and launches the church and the church and the, the great bishops and theologians, they try to appeal for mercy, right? They're, they're trying to advocate. I mean, they did advocate for eventually the abolition of slavery in different ways. Uh, you know, mercy there, like uh, less stringent punishments. And, and so, you know, they, they were actually asked by the Roman Empire to set up ecclesial courts where they practiced restorative justice type principles, uh, at least for the Christian community, and then maybe for others. Uh, but essentially, the, the movement was restorative, about restorative justice. And, um, Oh gosh, who who is it? I was going to cite someone. Maybe it'll come back to me. But the, the there's a real difference then. So the Protestant Reformation lays this groundwork for for thinking about God's justice not as restorative but as retributive. And then colonialism happens, and then you know they throw around all these things about the curse of uh, Cain. I mean the the curse of ham and right. you know the idea that some people are being punished retributively by god like right. you know in some kind of way that justifies our enslaving them or taking their land or something like that and and not only that but it it covers over you know theft of land and mm -hmm. uh health and life and family relations and all these things so so there is, there's a very real sense that uh, colonialism activated and, and this, this idea that divine justice is retributive it plays into the limbic part of our brain. I mean, bringing in neuroscience mm. here that uh, some people, neuroscience have, have argued, and I don't have reason to doubt this, but that argued that, that the deepest or the, the limbic part of our brain is uh, survival oriented and, and also retributive, right? Like we, we, we believe karma, we believe in it. We be mm. Like when you watch a, 
a movie, it doesn't make sense unless there's direct cause and effect stuff going on. So the um, so we we believe in karma, and yet restorative justice practices are effective, right? That's that's to yeah, me wow. uh, uh, evidence for the fall and the need for Jesus, right? That the corruption of sin is evident in the set because in the way that the evidence that we believe that we should do retributive justice and yet restorative justice works but it stretches us right it requires us to grow uh when we do that and and so that's the need for jesus so i i think that's i mean that's been my paradigm and and understanding recently uh, because uh, putting all these things together, like the social, political, psychological, um, and theological, they they have informed one another, and mm. and that's why, for me, it's been so important to go to the like the Jewish sacrificial system, and then my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Mm. Because, and and interpret it with the patristic writers, the early Christians, and interpret it more faithfully using literary analysis and the best tools that we have in biblical studies to defang penal substitution. Because if we don't, there's a gravitational pull back to those passages or back to what we think is going on there. And then, and then the whole, you know, entrapment starts happening again. Like we start believing in limited atonement and then the, the character of God being two-faced and all this stuff. And then our ethics become deeply retributive. That's it. So I'm, I'm curious, cause I know, um, so you are, you, you spend a lot of time with the patristics and Irenaeus in particular. I mean, would, is it fair to say that, that maybe we've missed that recapitulation in Irenaeus is restorative, right? Like, like that yes. simple points has not necessarily been stated so cleanly, right? Right, right. It is. Recapitulation is, you know, the word that Irenaeus uses, he draws it out from Ephesians 1 when Paul says the word recapitulation. Um, and, and basically it's that Jesus retells the story. He recapitulates, mm. reheads up, but it's a narrative right? It's so, so this is not just an instantaneous thing. It's his human life first, and then it's his Jewish life. And so when he goes through the water of baptism and the wilderness of temptation for 40 days, he's retelling Israel's story. He, because they went through water and then wilderness for 40 years. So, and then they came to a mountain. So Jesus does the same thing. Uh, he, water, wilderness for 40 days, comes to a mountain, deals with God's commands, and uh, and, and he does it because the origin story of the, of Israel was, was, uh, flawed right there. They made mistakes from the beginning. And it's like, it's like if Jesus were to get on sail from England to Plymouth, Massachusetts in a ship called the Mayflower, and then get there and treat the native Americans kindly and justly, right? He, he would be doing that because he'd be saying the origin story of, of the United States is flawed from the beginning. There were mistakes laid into the very foundation and it has to be redone. And this is not abstract. It has to be embodied. It has to 
be done. I have to do this. And it's just like Luke Skywalker had to retell Anakin Skywalker's story, right? Like this is the stuff he, (laughs) you know, he has to fight in a duel with the the blue and the red lightsabers. He has to learn the way of the force. He, He has to get his right hand chopped off, but he has to make the faithful choices when Anakin Skywalker fell to the dark side because the hero has to labor in the the aftermath of the choices of the tragic hero or the villain. This is why, again, Harry Potter has to retell Voldemort's story. He has to go through a childhood without love, but he makes the faithful choices. So recapitulation is just another word for, is Irenaeus's word for retelling, a retelling of an earlier narrative and and doing so in order to restore that which was uh, failed right before, or the, the ways in which people were defeated before by their own, the corruption of sin, by Satan, by whatever. And, and so Jesus retells the story and he succeeds where we failed. He shared in our broken humanity that we might share in his healed humanity. And in doing so and taking such approach, it, it also provides a, a practical paradigm um, for our, our own um, desire, struggle, journey to become fully human. Yes, it does. Which is completely missing from uh, uh, so much of um, a, a penal paradigm, right? That... Um, Penal substitution uh, then has to think about sanctification as a separate um, secondary consideration rather than integral to what it is to, to be in Christ. Right, exactly. And, uh, and that uh, it's frankly optional. I mean, because <laughs> right. yeah. it's the upgrade. The, yeah, that's right. Right. Like you could do this, <laughs> you know, it'd be good. <laughs> Or those super Christians. That's yeah, right. Would you, would you like to supersize your Christianity? Yeah. Right. This, this, you know, doing so demonstrates that you're grateful that God didn't destroy you or won't destroy you. Like it's it's a response to, but it's it's really dangerous because it's a response to survival emotions, right? In penal substitution, there there's just survival emotions. There's fear, guilt, and uh, and then relief and gratitude. And, and pretty much that's the emotional wheelhouse if you're, if you're just like talking about the atonement uh, mm-hmm. versus sanctification in the medical paradigm is the reawakening, the reestablishment and development of our desires for mm-hmm. beauty, for goodness, for love, for belonging, for justice, for, for order. But we were haunted by these words without knowing where they came from or how to pin them down or anchor them and and then we didn't know really how to develop ourselves in them Mm -hmm. Uh, but jesus does that by healing first his humanity and then coming into us to heal ours so to become a good to become more good more beautiful more loving i mean i i think that is at really the heart we know that about ourselves we know we're called to, to kind of uh, embark on the hero's journey, the, the heroine's journey, right? To grow as a person and to address the mistakes we've made before. I think this is why Iron Man, his plot arc in Marvel, like the Marvel movie is so amazing 
because he starts off as the selfish person. He, he gives his life as the ultimate unselfish person. And that is satisfying. You know, I, I looked up on, on the <laughs> uh, Google searched, do Christians complain that Tony Stark earned his salvation? Right, or something like that. Uh, and there, there's no article like that because, because we're persuaded. We know he had, to, and, and it's not just that he like became this on his own. If you notice the doctor uh, that saved his life in Iron Man 1, he, he loved the, the community that he was part of. And then he loved Tony Stark. In other words, that love pre-existed Tony Stark. And he hmm. began to participate in that love. Hmm. That's what was happening. That's the only and way we learn. And th so that love is, is the the knife and the fire, which made Tony Stark who we see in in the final film. That's right. Yeah. Uh, which I mean, um, the the knife metaphor and the fire metaphor won't be lost on on most people. But what the Orthodox or ancient Christianity um, do with those terms is that they're like this is it's not love or the knife it's not love or fire it's right. the fire is the love the knife yes. is the love and it's actually to participate um, in the fire that is love right right when Athanasius says you know that he would that he would consume the sin away like straw in fire uh, and, and everyone says yep the, the fire is the love of God. And, and we are gold. We're meant to be refined by that fire, right? Malachi 3, 1 Corinthians 3. There, I mean, there, that's everywhere. Revelation 22, 21 or 22, that, that we'd be pure gold, like transparent glass. Like, wait a minute, pure gold is not transparent like glass, but it's the refinement that mm. is being emphasized. And so uh, in Revelation 1, Jesus appears to us as the fiery one with the sword coming out of his mouth. He has wrapped himself in the mantle of the fiery sword. He is that because he's the way, the only way that God could return human beings back to the garden is if hmm. he burns and cuts things away from us with our partnership. Wow. Marco, um, this might be a bit niche and it might merely just be for Drew and my enjoyment, uh, but we'd be really pleased if um, you would uh, spend some time in the ancient Syriac poetry that re-articulated the, uh, uh, the form and the genre of the Psalms um, in light of Christ. W would you take us to... Um, uh, the Odes of Solomon, some um, give us a little bit of introduction and the implications for this conversation. Yes, absolutely. The, um, the Odes of Solomon were probably the church's um, second uh, songbook, worship book. I mean, the first being the, the Psalms of David, uh, you know, um, because David authored most of the Psalms, at least according to Jewish tradition, and, and th there's no real reason to doubt that, but the, the Odes of Solomon are a collection of 42 uh, uh, psalms. Uh, they're, they're structured in the same way. Um, they're called the Odes of Solomon, I think, because Solomon succeeded David, right? And, and so this is the, really the, the songs about Jesus, uh, and 
uh, but they, they are um, called the Odes of Solomon. And so they have the, the step parallelism, right? The A, B, A, B, or A, B, C, D kind of parallelism of one, one verse starts a thought and the second um, kind of develops it or concludes it. And um, one of my favorites, which illustrates this is Ode 11. Uh, mm. Many of these odes are actually written and spoken from the first person vantage point of Jesus. So yeah. you, there's, it, it's amazing. Uh, uh, th there's, there's a lot of um, uh, people who quote this afterwards. So, so we think it's very early first or second century, or at least it was collected then. Very Johannine. Uh, so there's a lot of the yeah. language of the Gospel of John. Um, water, light, uh, life motifs. This one is a little unusual. Uh, this is Ode 11. And, and this is the first person uh, standpoint of Jesus. And, and he's saying this, my heart was pruned and its flower appeared. Then grace sprang up in it and my heart produced fruits for the Lord. For the most high circumcised me by his Holy Spirit. Then he uncovered my inward being towards him and filled me with his love and his circumcises became circumcising became my salvation. And I ran in the way in his peace in the way of truth. And uh, it's probably, it, it seems to be referring to Jesus saying, I have circumcised my heart. I have cut that thing away uh, from myself through a faithful life and a faithful death. So I've killed the thing that was killing humanity. Uh, that, that is pretty remarkable. Yeah. Uh, another one uh, is Ode 17. Again, first person. Uh, and I'll, I'll just read it because this is stunning. It, uh, then I was crowned by my God and my crown was living. And I was justified by my Lord. This is Jesus speaking. I was justified by my Lord for my salvation is incorruptible. I have been freed from vanities and am not condemned. My chains were cut off by his hands. I received the face and likeness of a new person. Notice like in his resurrection, Jesus was not recognized, right? By his disciples mm -hmm. in John 20 and 21 and also Luke 24. I received the likeness of a new person. Uh, and I walked in him and was saved. And the thought of truth led me and I went after it and wandered not. And all who saw me were amazed. And I seemed to them like a stranger. And he who knew and exalted me is the most high in all his perfection. And he glorified me by his kindness and raised my understanding to the height of truth. And from there, he gave me the way of his steps. And I opened the doors which were closed and I shattered the bars of iron for my shackles had grown hot and melted before me and mm. nothing appeared closed to me because I was the opening of everything. And I went toward all my bound ones in order to loose them, that I might not leave anyone bound or binding. And I gave my knowledge generously and my resurrection through my love. And I sowed my fruits in hearts and transformed them through myself. Then they received my blessing and lived. And they were gathered to me and were saved because they became my members and I was their head. And then the last verse is the response of the congregation. Glory to you, our head, O Lord Messiah. Messiah. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Yeah. Amazing. So this is very Jewish. Uh, it is in the uh, uh, Syriac 
language, um, many people think the, the, especially after Jerusalem was sacked in 70 AD, that uh, a lot of Jews either went to, some went to Alexandria, Egypt, went south, but most went to what is now Syria, mm -hmm. centered in Antioch. Uh, so <clears throat> uh, Jean Danielou is the great patristics scholar who, uh, who I first uh, was introduced to that idea, and he gives more mm -hmm. literary evidence for it. But if so, then this would explain a little bit of why the Odes of Solomon are, um, take the shape that they do and uh, why it's so Jewish and, and, and why it's found um, kind of in Syriac speaking regions. Marco, all the um, Syrian refugees I've had the joy of befriending and, and pastoring uh, love to uh, remind us that um, uh, Syriac um, is so close to the language that our Lord spoke. And so Aramaic and Syriac. Um, so this poetry is, is literally um, would be understood um, by Jesus um, without interpretation. Um, and one of the things, Drew, that I, I love so much and um, would love to, you know, uh, as, as Inverse continues to grow as a community, Marco, um, we're so aware of the need of um, uh, rich liturgies, which actually um, foster and form us, uh, not merely with um, uh, information, but yeah. unto formation. Um, I, I love how in, in praying these prayers, um, you articulate what Jesus is articulating um, and in, in doing so, you are incorporated in the singing of these songs um, into a rearticulation of the Psalms through Jesus as you literally voice what Jesus is saying over you. And uh, what's handed to you is um, both the empowerment and the responsibility um, to make our Lord's journey our own because he has done it for us that we could not do without him. And yet by grace, we're being caught up in, in singing this song, which was not ours, but he has given us voice to sing. Like, it, it's just so beautiful on so many levels. Oh, I love it. Yes, it, it's, and it's, uh, it's thoroughly participation, um, and, but it, the, the uniqueness of Christ, like, is just central. Who else has done this? Hmm. Um, and, and I love how he says, uh, something very unusual. I was justified by my Lord. Right? Yeah. That's Jesus first person saying I was justified. I, Cause I think justification in the Jewish sense. And I, I think N.T. Wright has done a lot of good work refers to really uh, coming out on the other side of the Sinai covenant from exile into restoration. Right. So justification, uh, uh, I mean, may mean other things, but it then would apply also to Jesus because as he emerges in resurrection, yes, he is justified. And, but I think Paul says that in Romans 4, 25, yeah. right? He was crucified for our transgressions. He was raised for our justification, but that's because he is the justified one. Um, and the, and that's, yes, that's legal language, but it doesn't mean that the underlying substance of what's being declared is a, a legal or forensic um, reality. It, it's, it's a bit like saying, you know, if, <laughs> I mean, I hope we don't have to get to this point, but if, if our governments say uh, you need to carry a vaccine passport, 
That's a legal document. But the underlying reality to which it points is a medical one. And, you know, I, I think mm. originally that's what justification meant. It, it was saying, I, I am participating in the restoration of my own humanity in Christ. That, that's a healing medical uh, a substance behind that. Beautiful. Marco, um, I'm keen to continue this conversation um, into our Q&A with those who have joined us um, sure. live. Um, but uh, as a, a little taste test, would you mind reading some uh, from uh, Ode of Solomon 19? Um, I really would love to discuss um, uh, St. Ephraim and how he draws on this poetry um, and uh, how Syriac Christianity um, has this uh, incredible to devotion to the Trinity and the poetic imagery of um, uh, God, the father, who is a mother, a three-breasted mother, um, yeah. whose milk sustains those um, who nurse through Christ um, uh, at the teat of God. Um, would you give us a, a taste of that? And uh, um, then we'll, we'll move into our, but this has been incredibly rich. Thank you. <laughs> and uh, this is the, this was the most challenging one for me to, to read and study and, and to try praying myself. Uh, and, and I have a theory about it, but a cup of milk was offered to me and I drank it in the sweetness of the Lord's kindness. The son is the cup. And the father is he who was milked, and the Holy Spirit is she who milked him, because his breasts were full, and it was undesirable that his milk should be ineffectually released. The Holy Spirit opened her bosom and mixed the milk of the two breasts of the father. Then she gave the mixture to the generation without their knowing, and those who have received it are in the perfection of the right hand. The womb of the virgin took it. And she received conception and gave birth. So the virgin became a mother with great mercies. And she labored and bore the son, but without pain, because it did not occur without purpose. And she did not require a midwife, because he caused her to give life. She brought forth like a strong man with desire. And she bore according to the manifestation. And she acquired according to the great power. She, and she loved with redemption and guarded with kindness, and declared with grandeur. Hallelujah. Yeah, it's stunning. Yeah. The Holy Spirit is the female uh, pronoun, right? Like John 14 in the Syriac New Testament uses right. she for the Holy Spirit. Yeah. If we want to, I think that's a great starting point to talk about the motherhood of God. Mm. And Marco, that's what um, I've heard is that this in the Syriac Christians were very comfortable, right? Referring to the Holy Spirit, like it's a tradition that gets lost pretty much everywhere else, but you see it persist quite for a while for many centuries. Mm -hmm. um, that's way beyond my expertise, but that's what I've understood about, about that tradition. Yeah. Yeah. And um, from the, the Syrian and, and, Maybe others, I, I, I haven't read as deeply as I would like, uh, would um, set up choirs and uh, th as part of the liturgy. And, and often uh, women uh, 
were were singing as women, right? The women characters that that uh, uh, that they were singing, they're vocalizing. That was important, and and often he would focus as a storyteller, as a poetic storyteller, on many many female characters mm. um, from scripture. So it it really is stunning. Um, there's another uh, the melodist. Um, Romanos, the melodist, he's a, he's a Byzantine, uh, melodist. And, uh, so th that's more of the Eastern Orthodox, Greek Orthodox rather than, um, Syrian, but mm. it's probable that he had read, uh, Ephraim, the Syrian. Sure. Yeah. Well, M Marco, we'll go there in just a bit. Um, uh, I'm wondering for those who, um, are listening via the podcast would you be willing to to pray with people we're just so aware that um uh, this is an abstract for people while for some this is interesting kind of um discussions uh, on the academic level um for so many of us this deeply um uh, th these are threads which are starting to sew together a different um uh, garment one that actually um uh, feels and uh, fits in a way that looks like Jesus and would just appreciate if you'd be willing to, to pray for those who are listening as they go on this journey of finding an atonement that's as beautiful as, uh, as the Nazarene. Absolutely. Um, well, Lord, thank you so, so much for this time, for these moments that we could share together in, in virtual space, but we are present to you and, and we're present to the to one another and the ways that you've taught us, the ways you've led us, we're grateful. And we're grateful for the rich and deep inheritance that we could um, excavate and rest upon uh, in the early Christian tradition that your justice is restorative through and through, that you honor our stories even as you retell them, Jesus. And when you come into our lives, you desire to retell our stories. Thank you for that. Whether that uh, brings up feelings uh, and worries about our old failures or things that were done to us, we entrust ourselves and our lives and our stories to you because you really are the one who ties all our stories together in you. And we thank you that you do it with such grace and beauty. Pray that you would uh, minister to us. Um, recall the I myself that the Apostle Paul um, spoke of in Romans 7. Pray that you would help us to know ourselves as originally good and, and still good as we look at ourselves and discern things, um, and yeah, we're messy. There is also the flesh or the sin that indwells me, but we thank you that you have never given up calling out to us uh, and working in us so that we could see that th there is an I myself that is held together in your love by you, that you pursue that you make real in us, that still desires the things that are of you, love and belonging and beauty and justice and goodness. And we thank you, Jesus, that you 
healed our human nature, that you endured what it is like to be in this fallen world and in a fallen condition, that you fought our, our battles for us and you won, every one. We're grateful that we could look at your life, Jesus, and um, admire you, that you, you are the inspiration for every hero's journey, for every happy ending story, because you anchor what it means to truly triumph over human evil. Thank you for revealing a father who is 100% good. Help our hearts to be drawn to you every day. Strengthen our best hopes. Fill and renew and overflow whatever measure and capacity we have to love, to be passionate about your kingdom, to manifest your restorative justice. We thank you that you have given us marvelous work to do. And we thank you for the chance to partner by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. The Inverse Podcast is proudly supported by you, the listener. And if you want to join the revolutionaries who are helping us have conversations about how this ancient text can still turn the world upside down, why don't you head over to patreon.com slash inverse. 